Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest, Ilan Shrulovich, currently based in Florida, is a successful real estate investor, the CEO of eGuard Watch Company, and an accomplished actor. He's worked on numerous shows and films, including The Walking Dead, The Big Short, Deepwater Horizon, and multiple Marvel projects. Ilan has vast experience and connections in the industry. His directorial debut was unbelievably well-received internationally, with his film winning multiple awards. Alan's background as the CEO of eGuard Watch Company has put him in a unique position to use his platform and brand to spread positive messages and take a stance. His brand's films on foundational American values such as freedom, masculinity, and supporting the police made entirely by him have gone viral on numerous occasions. He has appeared on Fox News, Daily Wire, Western Journal, and countless other platforms as a guest speaker on key issues. He was the recipient of the Fox Patriot Award for Courage in 2020 for using his platform and brand to take a stand in support of police. His video, Speak Truth, released in the peak of the defund police movement, was a powerful counter to the rhetoric and fear pushed by so many today. Listen in on my conversation with Elan as we cover many topics and discuss his journey to the seemingly ordinary of having achieved the extraordinary. Listen in. Elan Shulovich, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me and excited to get into this conversation today, Elan. Thanks for for having me on. Yeah, it's very very excited to be here. So, Alan, we're going to talk a little bit about background of even how we came to connect. But um, you're an entrepreneur extraordinaire. You're a filmmaker, an actor, 
there's just a lot of things that you do. But if somebody says, Alan, what do you do? How do you describe what you do, given all that you do? Well, I like to think that I, the way I would describe it is that I do anything creative. I mean, that's pretty much what it, it comes down to, anything. Uh, so when people ask, like, what do you do? I'm a creative entrepreneur would be the kind of definition I would, I would give. It just, it just so happens that everything I've done has an art slant to it. An art slant to it. Okay, well, you're a young man. You've accomplished a lot. We actually happened to uh, just, I think we were, it was um, Nikki Ballou, who's a, a mutual friend slash acquaintance. And uh, it, was a, it was a kind of a mastermind or an entrepreneur group that we sat in on. And uh, and you had your camera on and you were in Florida. You're based in the U.S. Yes. And you were sitting on your dock or someone's dock with beautiful, sunny weather. Oh, yeah, Florida. Well, it was. I'll be honest, it was my dream home for years to buy like a, a point lot on the water right near the intercoastal. And uh, so... I left California about six months ago and I came to Florida. I'm like, they have point lots on the water here. I'm buying, I'm buying one. So I was like, that's it. That's my one big purchase for myself that I'm buying. So that was that. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was fantastic. Anyways, and then I heard a little bit about your story. And, uh, you know, part of the story that really intrigued me to begin with was your watch company, eGuard Watches. Yes, sir. So you've been doing that for a number of years. Let's start there. I mean, there's so many things I want to talk about with you, uh, especially around some of the short films that you've released over the past couple of years, for sure. Uh, certainly the past year. And uh, tell me a little bit about eGuard Watches. Uh, how did that come to be? Uh, I'm familiar with it. I was familiar with it before I even met you. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your watch company. So I started the watch company in 2011 or 2012, I believe. Um, what happened was I was looking for a gift from my father, who's turning 65. And uh, in all transparency, I was a bit of a rough kid. I went through a rough phase when I was younger, and my dad was the person who helped me through it. And then I had some health issues later on in life. And again, my dad dropped everything on a beat. Hey, dad, I need help. Flew, bam, help take care of me. So th there was a point in my life where I realized, wow, this guy is a huge part of the reason I am where I am. And I want to do something to kind of honor that, create a legacy behind our family. We don't have anyone else with our last name. We don't have much family. And so I started looking at things that would be interesting that I could get for him. And a watch was the number one thing that I felt represented time, represented the passing of time, something that you can pass up or pass down. So I started looking for a watch. Couldn't find anything that really appealed to me that was in the price point I wanted to spend that kind of felt unique. And so I started designing one. At the time, I was working at a place called uh, Pixel Liberation Front and then Moving Picture Company, which are big uh, movie studios that do visual effects and all that stuff. And I was part of the previs department. And I was able, through their software and through the 3D printing tech at the time, to start you know, prototyping watches and seeing what I want to do. Made the watch. And uh, he liked it so much, showed it to friends, such a positive response that I ended up turning it into a business. And I went on all the forums and I kind of grew it organically. So I started off with very small batches and kept growing every year more and more and more at a pace that I, I felt comfortable. So that's, that's the inception of, of the brand. Okay. It's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to design a watch and you've got, you know, the creativity and you've got maybe some tools in terms of software or whatever it might be to look at the design of a watch and put it together and, and do all that. And then reach out to somebody and say, can you make this watch for me? It's quite another to say, well, this is cool. Let me just do a whole bunch of those and let me start building the watches. Now, that's kind of how it sounded. Now, that that's, in fact, 
paraphrasing what you did. Essentially, what I relied on was the notion of pre-selling, was the notion that if there was interest that people would pre-buy the watch based on the one original prototype. And this has become far more popular since then. This actually segues into how I really, really launched my brand. So for the first year, I relied on pre-selling heavily. Uh, I made that one model. We took pictures of it. I made it you know, look good. I created the story around it. And then I started promoting that. And I said, we're only making 50. So if you want to get in on the next batch, we only have 50, create exclusivity, create scarcity. And then people bought them. And then, okay, well, next batch, we're doing 200 of this new collection. Uh, so that was really the process as opposed to having to have money to go ahead and do it. I didn't come at it from a background of saying, hey, I have a ton of money. Let me just you know make watches and hope for the best. I pre-sold a lot of stuff. And uh, that's what put me in a position. The, the good branding, the good story, the good pre-selling tactics is what put me in a position to start reaching out to people that I wanted to work with. And one of the people was William Shatner. And so we made an agreement early on, William Shatner and I, to do a watch for his following uh, that kind of celebrated uh, his life and how he's getting older and how he wants to pass something on to his children. And we created a watch called Passages. But I didn't have the money. He didn't ask for any money up front. He said, I'm going to be a partner with you on this. And I didn't have the money to make the watches. So what I did is I was one of the first people to use crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo as pre-selling platforms, as even just the psychological turn there of how you present your product and how you present the campaign. We made it 100% about you're buying this watch. You're just buying it in advance. And we did really, really well on that campaign. Um, and that, again, that kind of pre-selling philosophy helped launch it to a, another stratosphere on that event, which was in 2014, I believe. So tell me something when you started looking at it. I mean, you originally started as a gift for your father. You wanted to honor that, got it. Then you went on to say, well, let's design watches and let's build some watches. And was that coming from a place of just sheer entrepreneurship? I see some opportunity to build something that I can make some money at. Were you passionate about watches? What was the driving factor behind watches? I mean, if it would have been a a shirt that you designed for your dad? Would you have gotten into shirts perhaps? You know, what, what was there some, was there something that actually that fork in the road that you took for watch design that lit you up? Yeah, there was a certain feeling I had when I number one saw the completed watch and number two, when I saw my dad wearing one of my watches, there was a, it was, it was a, I guess a little bit more an emotional thing than it was a, I never thought about, Hey, this could be a multi-million dollar business. I never thought about any of that stuff. I thought, okay, well, if I feel this way, I'd really like to share that kind of opportunity with other people, because I do know that there's a lot of people out there who do see watches the same way as I see watches. And at the time I felt like there was something lacking in the market. So the real motivator for me was just how it made me feel. And I wanted to get that feeling again. I was just chasing that feeling. Uh, so this felt good. You know what I mean? Sure. And so that's what I went after. It did start becoming obviously a business opportunity after the William Shatner thing and seeing, you know, other people get involved and then seeing how I could grow it. And, you know, there's, there's aspects of that I, I love. And then there's aspects of that, that I, I always want to keep that same feeling that I initially had and not allow it to turn into an overly business centric thing. Sure. Uh, so I never want to lose the passion of why I went into it. Now I want to get and ask you about William Shatner. What's your price points on your watches? The price points on the watches right now range from 100 to our highest price point releasing in the next couple of weeks is about 1850 retail. We've gone up to 2000. So $100 to 2000 is yes. huge. US. So, so, yeah. so, 
Perfect. So I've looked at the watches. I actually, I've looked at the watches. I actually think now I'm going back in my memory banks that uh, I saw that original uh, crowdfunding campaign with Kickstarter because I'd actually done a couple different products on Kickstarter that I was interested in and uh, they were kind of innovative and unique. So let's go back a little bit. Now I know you've You've produced short films. Uh, I don't know if you've produced long films. You're an actor. You worked with Pixar. Where did the relationship with William Shatner, uh, where was it born? And how did you come to reach out to him? So when it comes to, I always get asked the same question. How do you get so many celebrities? How do you work with celebrities? How, how do you get them to sport your watches? And my answer is always, you know, you don't see the 1,000 phone calls that happen for that sure. one to work out. And so if you have a good story, if you have good branding, I was in, in the William Shatner case, I had a friend who was an actor who I'd been pitching to wear my watches. He had been wearing them. William Shatner saw the watch on Twitter and happened to like it, which was very serendipitous, but virtually we have hundreds of celebrities wearing them. It's just a ton of phone calls. It's a ton of pitching. It's a ton of unique, always realize these people are being pitched a thousand times a day. So how do you come at it from a unique standpoint where you're offering some kind of value that no one else is, is offering or something that will interest them? Uh, and I think branding and story is a huge part of that and then finding a unique offering within that. So the thing that really appealed to William Shatner was the, my ability to communicate the story to him. And when he felt that, he was like, okay, well, if you can communicate that to me very well, then that will co be communicated to my following very well. And we can create something beautiful here because he was very passionate about it too. So there was a connection over passion. And in many ways, maybe he was chasing the same feeling that I was in terms of that whole feeling of legacy and being able to pass something up or down. So it just worked out. So tell me a little bit, Ilan, is that, you know, I, I love that concept. I mean, Story is so incredibly important in business. You know, what is your story? What is the story? You know, what is the content? What is the message? So in the case of watches, aside from, you know, what you built for your father, was that the story? Like what was, what's the narrative behind it in terms of what you position it, how you position it? Yeah. So, okay. So I'll break this down. I always feel like in business, people say you need your why, right? And I, I agree with that, but you need two whys. You need your personal why. You need the reason you're personally doing this, why you're going to risk your money, why you're going to risk your time, and all these things to go in and, and do something that has a high chance of failure. The second thing is your business is why. What is your business trying to do? And so my personal why was, like I said, I was chasing that feeling. For my business, the narrative behind the watches was essentially that we were trying to create art pieces that you can wear on your wrist that would represent a legacy, kind of the, the Patek approach. You never really own a Patek. You're just holding it for the next generation. Sure. The whole business is trying to create a legacy, both for myself, because if I can create a successful business, it creates a legacy for myself and my family, but also for those who buy the watches. So the story behind the brand is if you want to create a legacy, you know, we're not a $50,000 Patek Philippe, but our watches are unique. They're beautiful and they're art. And you can you can pass them up or down. Uh, so that was the unique kind of aspect of the brand. Uh, from a functional standpoint, we also did things that no one else was doing at the time. We created very, very unique cases, trademark cases. We created sapphire crystals in shapes that no one else was doing. So I just wanted to innovate from a aesthetic standpoint to tie into that. Because if you're going to give someone something that's meant to create a legacy, you want to do something that has a unique aspect to it. So for example, the William Shatner timepiece, I went, I sourced a meteor and I dusted it and we put it on the dial of the watches. That was the first watch, I believe, where we made the curved sapphire crystal that has the asymmetric 
look, kind of like that teardrop shape, the dolly shape. So that was a, a huge part of it as well, trying to find a unique proposition. So when you started the business, did you actually have a vision for getting, like, was your vision for your watch company for eGuard watches to be big? Was it to be where it is today? Like, did you have a vision that you were working backwards from? Were you just driving harder to just kind of organically get to where it is now? And I don't mean organically as in you didn't drive it. I just mean as one thing leads to another, you're connecting dots and you're getting, you know, as you're to your point, you get you get some personalities, some actors, et cetera. You work hard to connect with those. So was that the vision for the business all along was to get big? Was that kind of where you got to fairly quickly? I don't know if I anticipated the things happening that happened. Mm-hmm. That's that's hard to, you know, if in all honesty, I didn't anticipate a lot of the things happening. I kind of am an impulsive guy. I live in the moment very much, but I do plan. I mean, there's a lot of things I plan, but I, the way I work is I always have uh, a set of goals for the day that I know will help me reach my long-term plans. So if my long-term plans are to grow the business, I'm never as specific as, well, yeah, I am like, let's say I say I want to hit a goal of 10 million a year, but I don't hold myself or 15 million a year, whatever that number is. I don't hold myself to that as the standard for what I'm going to do or not do. That's somewhat of an, it's not necessarily ethereal, but it's future-based. So what do I usually focus on is exactly what I can do in the day. So coming into the brand, a lot of the time, uh, I would say it was more of an organic approach because I was like, what do I need to get done today? Well, okay, well, if, if growing the brand is going to mean at this point, I need more celebrities wearing the watches. That's what's going to help give social proof to the brand. Because when you're a new watch company, it's hard to get people online to drop $500 if they don't know you're even going to send them a watch, sure. especially on a pre-order. So you need social proof. So these, I was just looking at what are the problems? Why would people buy, not buy, and how do I solve them? And then Actually, not planning for growth was was an issue because we've sold out numerous times because I didn't plan ahead enough for growth. And that's a big lesson for me personally, was uh, I didn't trust enough in my ability to grow the company to have enough inventory at the time for the booms that happened. And that's happened roughly three or four times. I've always kind of played it a little safe on the inventory side. And I think that, that that's okay. I mean, that's just part of the learning process. But maybe that's because I'm so present based and I'm like, what can I do to grow the company that sometimes I forget? Well, if it gets to here, what do I what do I need when it gets there? Now, what, just to, out of curiosity, I, I want to, you know, because I'm as an entrepreneur myself, I'm always interested in kind of people's journeys. You know, where are you at today? Uh, you, you know, you're the CEO. Are you and the principal? Do you have partners? Uh, what what kind of a team have you put together? Where are they located? Are you you know, you moved from California into Florida. So are you living in a virtual world given COVID? What happened with the business in that regard? Yeah, we we moved the warehousing to Florida. So all logistics now is out of here. Mm-hmm. We still have some stuff left in Delaware. California was a little bit tough to run the company out of just in general. So I would say that we were planning on leaving regardless of COVID. And so Florida is a lot a lot better. But uh, the business is a, is a very small team. You know, my father's still involved till today. He's passionate about it. I've told him many times, I'm like, you can you know, there's no reason for you to be working. It's very easy for me to to just hire someone to to help with logistics or whatever, you know, you want to be doing. And he was like, no, he's like, I really want to be doing this. He's like, if I wasn't doing this, he's in his seventies. Sure. Um, he loves the watches. Every time I have a new design, he's involved. So it's, it's very much a family thing in terms of uh, the team and in terms of, you know, who, who we work with or people who are close with us. Um, and then we also do use, uh, um, consulting companies, so like third-party companies. So we don't have an in-house uh, Facebook 
and Instagram marketing team, we outsource it. Outsource and we do that with, um, there's a really, yeah, there's a really great American company that we work with. And so they're a great team. And then we've kind of branched off from their recommendations to use some other companies that do kind of like a full spectrum for us of stuff. Just keeps it easier. Yeah. Yeah. Now, was the move from California strictly business given right now? There's tons of conversation. Now, this is what we're getting in Canada. And and gosh, you know, with mass media or with mainstream media, I should say, and what we hear, you know, it's, we don't even know, I don't even know what's true anymore. But anyways, California, what we know about California, high tax consequences, business, personal, are you, were you taxed out of California or was it just a logistics thing and you're going, no, I'm out? I was not only taxed out of California, the policies in California across the board motivated me to leave. Yeah. You know, when you have a family and there's people going to the bathroom on the street, uh, there's people doing drugs on the street and the government just doesn't seem to have any plan or any motivation to try and never mind help those people. That's a huge thing. Like you want those people helped, but at least, you know, also they should be, you know, allocated to areas where it's safe. There shouldn't be needles on the ground. There shouldn't be feces on the ground. If you have kids, you don't want them around that kind of stuff. So I just saw a downward decline for California in general, which made me very worried on a personal level. Uh, additionally, there's earthquakes, there's fires. Now, California is one of the most beautiful places. It has everything going for it. It's got beautiful weather. It's got culture. It's got the best restaurants. It's got entertainment. And so it's very, very, you know, I, I love California. And so it was a very hard kind of thing to see and plan ahead and say, okay, I don't think, you know, home values. I owned a home. I was worried about my home value. I was worried about taxes going up, new policies coming out that would not only affect me from a taxation standpoint if I live there, but now they're trying to pass the six-year back tax or whatever it is. Yeah, if you, crazy, you know, crazy which shit. Is, I, don't, I, I don't know if it's unconstitutional, but it seems like it's unenforceable at a minimum. At a minimum. Yeah. The state does not have authority to start going after you in another state when you no longer live in their state and say we're taxing you. Just unheard of. It's unheard of. And so there's, there's a lot of detrimental policies based on ideas or ideology as opposed to based on function. And what's going to create a better tomorrow. And uh, I don't want to be, and I didn't want to be a part of that. So I looked at what parts of the United States are most free in terms of individual freedom. Mm -hmm. And Florida was the highest uh, ranked on the freedom index. And so that was a big motivator for me to come. Yeah. And we were talking just really briefly, you know, prior to the show, I mean, in Florida, you basically have no lockdowns. There's really nothing going on there that would indicate that there's any stress around COVID? Is that that's is that what I did I hear that correctly? Yeah, I mean this is a much deeper issue, uh, you know, in terms of what and how people want to live their lives. But my fundamental ideology, just coming from the background that my both my parents had, which was experiencing a lot of oppression. My mother had to escape Iraq. My dad's family uh, was killed off in the Holocaust. Uh, so two interesting backgrounds there, which kind of formed how I view the role of government and the role of uh, individuals in society and what we owe to each other. And I'm a, a huge proponent of individual responsibility, personal responsibility. And so I, I actually have an autoimmune disease. I'm high risk for COVID. And uh, when COVID hit, I was one of the advocates right off the bat saying, we just have to be responsible about this. If I'm high risk, I can stay at home. I don't know if you want to get into the politics of COVID, but essentially I can wear a mask. I can do what I need to do. But for a 20-year-old who's not high risk at all to shut down for a whole year, I understood the two weeks, the six weeks. But at some point, I felt like this is just becoming something that's detrimental to society and will have more long-term negative ramifications than the virus itself if we don't start calling it out. 
The reason I bring this up is because there's a video we released through the brand, which ties into this, which is the what is a freedom, uh, what is freedom uh, video. Dude, that, you know, those that video before I even met you, I had seen that video. Now, you've done a number of videos, but, you know, that one, I, I don't know. I don't know how many views hits you had on it, but it was several million and it was pretty powerful. Yeah. So we interestingly enough, YouTube has throttled many of our, our videos. We have one that has something like six or 7 million, but we really had something like 25 million on that video. And the views just kept coming down and down. And then the video got restricted. And then they said, you can only see it if you start, an, if you have an account and log in. And then, uh, it, yeah, they started removing it from people's recommended lists. It was, it's just weird what they were trying to do. But there's nothing controversial really about, I didn't, find the message all that controversial you know any any insights into why they would start to whatever if the term shadow ban it like you know where that came from i think it came from the fact that what you or i perceive as controversial is not necessarily what some people with extreme views consider controversial and those people with extreme views despite being the minority have managed to impose themselves onto the rest of society and therefore, saying completely rational things nowadays is considered controversial or considered a threat to their ideas. And sadly, that has resulted in mass censorship. That has resulted, I mean, never mind if you think something's controversial or not. You can sometimes have two people say the exact same thing, like Gina Carano and her castmate, uh, Pablo, I don't know uh, his last name, the guy from The Mandalorian. They both made Holocaust Nazi comparisons, which I find. Holocaust comparisons are reprehensible, regardless of who's making them. I don't think you should be fired for them. I think it should be explained that 6 million people are not being killed right now. Maybe we shouldn't be for their, you know, for being Jewish. Maybe we shouldn't just leave it out of the conversation. There's other things you can compare it to. But Gina's actually was less controversial than her castmate. Her castmate had shown a picture claiming it was the United States, compared it to Nazi Germany. It wasn't even the United States. It was another country. Mm. I mean, his was, and then claiming that the United States are like Nazis. Her comparison was a quote saying that we're starting to treat each other so terribly. And that when you look at Nazi Germany, that Hitler didn't only get soldiers to attack the Jews, he convinced society, people's neighbors, even children to attack the Jews. That's a far more fair and non, uh, I would say, controversial quote than what he did. He literally misused a photo, yet there was no outrage for him. There was no get him banned. And on the case of Gina, because of her political ideas or her political ideology, she was not only banned, but her agency dropped her, her manager dropped her, the show completely cut her off. The Hasbro, the toy company, stopped making her toy. It's like we have to erase people from existence the second they challenge the status quo nowadays, which is a very, very scary place to be. Yeah, and I and I find the frustration is 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 who sets the status quo. That's there therein lies for me some of the debate and some of the question. I mean, I've watched you know uh, where you know videos have been banned that I saw before they were banned. I'm going, where did they go? And and who's to say that is one point of view or the other is correct? You know, it's a conspiracy to think that this is the way it is, and it's not a conspiracy to think the other way. It's it, it, it's an interesting polarization of views or it's an interesting polarization of society this is what the pandemic has really driven is what i'm seeing and it's like you're for covid or against covid you believe in the pandemic or you don't it's there there is that that high degree of polarization 
that's what I'm seeing. It, it, even in, you know, not even in Canada, but in Canada, and my view of it, what I what where I pay attention to it in the U.S. Um, are you experiencing that as well? Every virtually every single issue has become extremely polarized to the point of believing that the other person is is uh, you know preaching hate speech. I actually had an argument recently. I'm a huge freedom of speech advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interestingly enough, Canada doesn't have the same protections as the United States for speech. And so I've had conversations with a lot of Canadians who feel very differently about it than I do. And maybe that's just a cultural thing. And um, But for that very reason, the popular ideology of today doesn't necessarily mean it's the ethical one. You go back to time where slavery uh, was occurring, the popular opinion was that slavery is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Freedom of speech, freedom of ideas is what allowed to challenge those things with virtually every single breakthrough of human rights, freedom of speech, the ability to come up and stand strong and say what you believe. And in many cases, that wasn't allowed and they still did it. But that courage to speak out and to express a new idea was what allowed positive change. Uh, and so we're getting to the point where now we're saying, no, 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 let's erase history. Let's take Aunt Jemima off of syrup because it offends people despite their own her own family lineage saying no that is an honor to hers that she's on on uh syrup that was the one of the earliest stages of normalization of a black face in american households in white households she was one of the first people who became a mass face recognizable so every morning when a child back when the syrup came out was eating pancakes something they loved they saw her face Mm -hmm. that helps fight racism that helps fight it. You know, so we're, we're going in the wrong direction. We're becoming pro-segregation, pro, you know, anything that challenges our way of thought. And I think it's bigger than COVID. I think it's just, number one, I think it's somewhat orchestrated just because as long as we're fighting with each other, as long as there's tension with each other, governments can do whatever well, they and want. I, and, I, and let's face it. I mean, at the end of the day, there's no secret that when politicians find a way to drive that kind of idealism in their direction and the polarization and the fear and all the rest of it. I mean, it sets them up for success. I mean, there's, I don't even think, uh, I, I would suggest that that's not debatable. We see it. It's proven. I think COVID, you know, really accelerated all of that, what was happening, but it was already starting to go that direction. But I think it was already going that direction. I mean, as long as there's a government, as long as there's politicians in this world today with what's happening, the idealisms and whether it's uh, racism or feminism or or whatever the issues are, it, it seems it is up to the politicians to divide and conquer. That's, you know, I'm not probably articulating it the way I want to, but that's kind of the general direction I see it going. Yeah, I mean, you have multiple things happening from a technological standpoint, and then you have something happening like COVID. We had social media, which was already separating us and allowing us to say what we want and create our own echo chambers. Again, it all comes down to diversity of thought and diversity of opinion being expressed. The more people are exposed to different ideas, the more they will be willing to accept and be able to listen to those ideas and then come up with a challenging viewpoint to those ideas. And in doing so, they challenge themselves to formulate new, more integrated versions of reality. But if I'm always in an echo chamber where I'm being reaffirmed with everything I say, whether regardless of which side you're on, right? If you believe COVID is a conspiracy where they're taking blood from children and it's a satanic cult and that, you know, they're going to destroy the entire population and whatever you want to believe, you go online, you can find that. You can create a whole echo chamber that backs up your position. You never have to be challenged for it. Vice versa, if you believe that it's going to, it's the most dangerous virus in the world and has a 50% mortality rate and 
we need to lock down forever and wear 40 masks, you can back that position up. Mm -hmm. So there's no longer a baseline or a proper lens for truth or reality, right? It used to be that you had non-biased news come on or much less biased news come on, and that was your lens to the world. Now we create our own lenses. So you expedite that. You're right. COVID comes in, which is a pandemic, which is something that challenges everyone's view of what normal is. And then we get to go into our echo chambers and back up our version of reality exponentially higher. What made it worse was the fact that we were forced into isolation now. Never mind that we're creating our own world because of social media. Now we're forced to actually literally be isolated and create our own world. And so, you know, when I said the whole view of normal is is something... Uh, it's an interesting thing. When I when I said earlier that I had an autoimmune disease, it completely challenged my view of myself, of the world, of my mortality, everything. So when COVID came around, I was more equipped, I think, to deal with these kind of things than someone who hadn't dealt with that. And so I saw a huge shift for a lot of people. And I think that's what a lot of people had trouble dealing with, is that their whole sense of, of normalcy was heavily challenged during COVID. Um, and so you grip, you grip onto whatever is going to make you feel safe. Yeah, hundred percent. What is in what is normal now is changing. It's evolving. I think you know people live into uh, a hope, perhaps an illusion that it'll go back to some version of normalcy after vaccines, and, and and it's just there is no going back. I mean, it's changed forever, and what it will be in the future is hard to say, but it will not be what it was. There's no doubt about that. I want to talk a little bit about some of the short films you've done and, and can you list them off? I know there was the one that just popped into my head was around uh, the Gillette commercial around masculinity. I know that was one of them, but the, the one that we were talking about earlier, what was the name of that? Cause I, I'll put the links in the, in the, the show notes, but what was the, give me, give me the, there was two or three that you did that were really great short films that were somewhat controversial. I might say that. Yeah. The most controversial ones are the, what is a man? which is the Gillette, the response to Gillette. What is freedom, which is the one about uh, lockdowns and goes a little bit into that and the hypocrisy of some of the things we see from our uh, politicians. And then the third one was called Speak Truth, a message that needs to be heard, which was about humanizing law enforcement in the middle mm, of the- That was the one, yeah. Now, first off, give me a little bit of background. Where does the you know, where does the talent or where does the background in filmmaking come from? Because those are really well done. I think you even voiced one or all of them. I don't recall, but where's the background in that filmmaking come from, Ilan? Yeah. So I did all those videos. I voiced them. I edited them. I did everything from uh, beginning to end. I mean, they're, they're, they're brilliant. I mean, they're brilliant in terms of even just the, well, if, if even if you're, they're controversial, let's just say the production quality is freaking awesome. And, and, and they became like, they were really, really good. Like it looked total pro. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, the background came from, like I said, I'd worked in those movie studios. I mm. acted a lot. I've been an actor in uh, some big shows like the walking dead. I just finished shooting a Marvel show, uh, Deepwater horizon NCIS, just different shows. I've, I've always been a working actor and that kind of gave me a sense of you know, behind the scenes of what needs to take place. And then my, I love directing. And so when I was working in, when you do previs, you're essentially directing. Yeah. Previs and directing are hand in hand. So you have the background in terms of making them uh, given where you came out of. Now, what is the the passion behind it? I don't want to, I'm a little bit re reluctant to use the word idealisms, but there is some idealisms in what you produced. And, you know, let's start with, and just what is the, 
what was it about the Gillette cur- uh, commercial that you went to, you know, what is a man and, and, and produced what you produced? What was a little bit of, give me some insights into that. So every single commercial I do is based on the position of just humanizing uh, a situation. So the Gillette commercial isn't really, I always say the Gillette commercial was just a straw that broke the camel's back, but that there was clearly a lot of rhetoric prior that was negative toward not only, in my opinion, just men and young boys and how they're perceiving themselves and how they're communicating, but it also hurt women. In other words, if we don't lift each other up, if we start attacking each other, that affects both sides. And so, you know, terms like toxic masculinity, male, 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 men are responsible for this, men are responsible for that with no kind of nuance or no kind of tact. We can't do that with anyone. We imagine we did that with women. Imagine like stories that come out today. And I've actually researched the headlines. When you type in man on Google or man does, it's all negative. And I've spoken to kids about it. I've spoken to people who work with boys and they said, yes, there is an effect from this. And so it was something I was very passionate about moving in to this kind of field because I felt like it's just detrimental again to society. If there's a problem with women, that's very valid and we should look at it and try and fix it. If there's a problem with men, we should look at it and try and fix it. But we need to be lifting each other up, not generalizing half the population as if they're villains. And the Gillette ad, the interesting thing is uh, people say like they weren't doing that. And I'm like, listen to their words. They said, some men aren't like this. Some implies the minority of men. In other words, their implication, a company that has traditionally supported men and made a men's product has shifted so strongly that their new narrative is that some men are not not these terrible monsters that they showed who are like these sexual deviants or abusive or whatever that thing is, or violent. And so that's become the pervasive narrative nowadays to the point of even when you try and have an opinion or have a conversation, people go, you shouldn't have an opinion about that. You're a man. Imagine I said, you shouldn't have an opinion about that. You're a woman, or you shouldn't have an opinion about that because of your race. That's an absurd, absurd concept. And and everyone should be able to have an opinion about whatever they want and should be allowed to express said opinion. So what creates a better world? What creates a better world is showing the positive in many cases in a group of people showing what they go through and then saying, this is what you can strive to be. If you want to help men, if you want to inspire men, show the best of men, not the worst of men. And then claim that we need to do something about it because there's a small percentage of men out there who are terrible human beings. Yes, we know they're there. No one in my family, no one in my circle, no one who I identify with is going to be that way. So there's very limited action I can take at this point in my life to stop a rapist out there who I'm unaware of. Any more than, and he's not a rapist because he's a male. He's a rapist because he's a rapist. That's the defining trait, not his masculinity. Um, And again, more so further studies show that you look at these uh, situations where there's more crime or more drug use or uh, in young boys or, or more abuse toward women. The number one thing you find is a lack of masculinity in the household. Uh, it's that there is not a father in the household. It exponentially increases the probability of all these things happening. So positive male role models are absolutely necessary and positive masculinity is absolutely necessary as a staple for creating a better tomorrow for both men and women. And uh, so I wanted to highlight that. I wanted to to kind of make a statement saying we don't need to be vilifying each other. If you watch my video, I don't mention women. I don't mention feminism. I don't mention anything that women go through. I just solely focus on men and what they go through and try and celebrate some of the good things men do. And that's it.
So that was the intention there. So what do, what do you think was behind the scene? And I agree 100% with everything you said. There's actually nothing I could do to actually even say that any different or better. What do you think the intention behind Gillette with the commercial? Why do you think they went that direction? I think if you ask me, number one, they hired someone who was a, uh, a feminist to do the commercial. Mm. And sadly, if you look at, you know, third, fourth wave feminism, my view on it is that it's become more about attacking than about celebrating. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a lot of validity to first wave feminism, second wave feminism, and even certain aspects of third wave feminism. But they've kind of, in my opinion, again, lost focus on how to empower versus victimization. And this brings kind of a so I think what Gillette did is they were like, how can we increase sales as much as possible? How can we hop on a bandwagon? And I don't think it was authentic. One of the things I think, and this, from a business standpoint, this is important. It's okay to put out a controversial message. It's okay to take a political stance, as long as it's in line with your core fundamental ideals and it's authentic. People can smell, they just know when it is not truthful. And the Gillette thing came across as so orchestrated and so disingenuous and that they were just trying to get sales. In other words, if Gillette had always been a company that had somewhat attacked men or generalized men, and had always centered itself around this idea that men are a problem in society, men need to change, men can do better. I think that that commercial wouldn't have hurt them. I think it would have helped them. The fact that they just pulled a 180 and that it seems so disingenuous, it's like, well, this is what's trendy today. Let's jump on it. It's like, no, be consistent. Be consistent in your advertising, and then you can be controversial. Yeah, it's out of integrity. It was definitely out of integrity with the brand and even what they apparently prior to that had stood for. So that's always the issue, right? And but it's funny, the psychology of humans, I guess, is to look at the, the negative side of things, the, the downside of things, the dark side of things. And, you know, I would only assume that they were playing to that, like so many headlines do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's become very trendy nowadays is just identity politics in general. And I'm not a fan of identity politics. Mm-hmm. I think identity politics is inherently devices, divisive and inherently generali- generalizing. And so... Um, and it, it's terrible on both sides, right? You look, you look at it inevitably leads to the same thing. And so I think what a lot of companies are relying on is the lowest hanging fruit in order to get, you know, views in order to get a response, which is identity politics. You bad, I good. My, my group good, you, your group bad. You know what I mean? Like, and then so sure. they play into that. And, and I think society needs to take a step back from this hyper obsessive focus on identity politics and negativity, like you said, then the natural inclination of a human being is to, in many cases, seek the negative, not the positive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have to fight to find the positive. We have to fight to stay in a state of positivity. I would argue that it should be the role of companies to put out advertising that pushes us in the role of positivity, not pushes us in the role, in in the direction of divisiveness and negativity. Um, which is one of the things, again, that really made me want to counter the Gillette ad. Now, you also did a, I mean, you've done the, the other two that we talked about, which was the freedom, but the other one was around police, uh, especially in the U.S. during, there was riots going on and all the rest of it. Now, what what was your view of that? Because the police in the U.S. were were painted with a pretty dark picture. You know, they were all crooked. They were all part of the conspiracy. I mean, gosh, the news, there was all sorts of stuff coming out around it. But what was there one thing that triggered you in terms of producing that? Or was it just an overall direction that the media seemed to be taking and, and the picture they were painting of police? So 
the reality is I was actually, when I grew up and for many years, I was anti-police. I had bought into the narrative that police are out there violating people's rights and killing people. I didn't know how many people were dying every year. I thought thousands and thousands of people were being killed by police in the United States, unarmed, especially African-Americans. So the turn for me, as the defund police thing happened, and George Floyd was a big one for me. It really, really bothered me seeing the George Floyd uh, death. So I was angered at police. And it took me seeing how it escalated and how the media used that to, again, generalize for me to start looking into stats. Now, I started looking into stats prior to the George Floyd thing, but I wasn't as passionate about it. I made a film that was not critical of police, but looked at the humanizing aspect of both sides. It showed what police go through. And, and this is a separate film. This was a personal project. And it showed what this, it was essentially a story about a judge, a black judge, a police officer and a young black kid and kind of their life and their experiences and how their life led to each one in this final culmination acting a certain way, which results in a tragedy. And that then we just see a two second clip and we judge their entire life based on this two second clip to decide who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, when really the situation was far more complex and we're all victims of our own past and our own traumas. Mm -hmm. That was the story of the original film. So I always tried to humanize both sides of this, right? And, but after the George Floyd thing, I was really outraged and it led me actually to seek truth, to see what, what's going on here. I see this video. Now I'm judging this cop. I'm judging all cops just instinctively. Instinctively, I see something like that. I judge all cops. And so it led me to start looking at stats, looking at the FBI uh, crime database, uh, trying to get to the bottom of it, interviewing police. And what I learned is how grossly we are misled on the statistics of what the shootings are, how many unarmed people are killed, how big an epidemic this is or isn't. And what I found was that out of the, so every year in the United States, there's over 60 million police interactions. Now, over half of those are with African-Americans. That's just what it is. That's not due to racism. That's not due to anything. It's due to interactions that there's more police. You can get very into this. In other words, there is a history of racism, but that's the amount of interactions a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Of those 60 plus million interactions, there are 870,000 police officers quickly going down. There's police officers dropping out at record numbers, but 870,000 police officers. There was less on any given year than 15 Af unarmed African-Americans killed in 2019, depending on the stat you look, 10 to 12. Of those, eight to nine had witnesses present defending the police officer, witnesses who were people of color, so it's, in other words, there were three to five cases a year on average that were very, that were considered con very controversial, where you could now look at those and say, that out of 60 plus million police interactions with African-Americans, six, let's say three to five that are very controversial. Yeah, and anyone who actually looks in the stats will tell you the chances of being compliant and unarmed and not actively committing a crime and being killed by a police officer is significantly lower than getting struck by lightning, something like three times in your life. You'll, you're more likely to get struck by lightning three times in your life than being those three things. Compliant, not committing a crime, and unarmed. This regardless is, of your skin color. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. The mainstream media drives those. I'm, I'll call them headlines. It's interesting in our in our world of real estate and real estate investing. We have a segment called "What's Behind the Curtain." Now, what's behind the curtain is really looking at the headlines that are really put out in the in the mass media, whether it be in written form or even you know on the news. Um, and we look and listen to what's being said versus what the reality of it is. It's interesting about what you've done. Uh, which, you know, 
kudos to you, man, is that you've actually said, okay, well, I'm being, you know, I'm even finding myself generalizing or generalizing what I'm, how I'm seeing the police based on what I'm hearing. But you said to yourself, I'm going to dig into this and find out what's really behind the curtain in all of these uh, messages that are being put out there, the picture that's being painted for the police. It's interesting being in Canada. I mean, we have to give some scope to Canada. I mean, we're 37 million in a very, very large land mass versus, you know, 370 million that is happening with the U.S. I mean, it's a total different population and economy and everything else. And we're so at the effect of the news that we're inundated in Canada with, you know, we sometimes joke is that, you know, with the U.S. Uh, presidential election, for example, you know, it's like, are we're, we don't vote. Like, why are we getting hammered? Like, it's like, it just, it's a, it's a wave of media, mass media, uh, mainstream media out of the U.S. And we can't help but be at the impact of that. To your point, I mean, you're a pretty level-headed guy. You're smart. You've, you've proven that. You've got a track record for that. Yet you found yourself being impacted by the message. And, you know, the difference with you is that you pulled back from it and said, hold it. I got to call bullshit on this or at least dig into it and find out what's going on because this is impacting me and affecting me. It just comes down to every single position promoted nowadays, every single one by the news, by the by entertainment, by our politicians are ones of fear and not humanization. Right. So it's the same exact situation of identity politics with men versus women. It's I saw a video that came out that truly bothered me, which was they took black families. They sat them down and they had a conversation with the mother and the kids, different families of how do you feel about police? How do you feel this? The kids are there crying, saying, I don't want my brother to die. And the mom's like, yeah, you, like in, actually promoting this. In other words, it's now ingrained into the population, especially the African-American population, that police will kill you. Even if you're unarmed, there are little kids here crying, 13-year-old kids crying that I don't want police to kill my brother. That's not normal. That will escalate situations when there's no need to. In other words, if you have 30 million Americans, 50 million Americans, 100 million Americans who now believe that when they have an encounter with police, it will result in them being shot and killed, despite the statistics being that there's less than a one in a million chance. They truly believe in this interaction that their life is in danger. Mm -hmm. That's what we're creating. And what do police now believe? That there's more tension too. You take two populations that should be coming together and talking to each other and having more community outreach and having more conversations about this. And instead, what we're doing is we're making them so scared of each other that you're going to raise those numbers of shootings exponentially, because now you have tension on both sides. And in a state of tension, in a state of panic, you will have a negative outcome. So we're doing the exact thing to cause the outcome that nobody wants. And we're seeing it repeatedly time and time again. I talk to police officers that go, I've never been so scared to be out on the street. I think someone could come and shoot me in the back of the head. It's happened, mm -hmm. right? I think they, they literally walk down the street. They go, people spit on me. People have come to my house and targeted my kids. My own neighbors have targeted my kids. My kids are being bullied in school. How is that cop supposed to go out and not be uptight when he's doing his job? They get bleach poured in their Starbucks when they go to Starbucks. And then on the other end, you have literally every minority being told that police will kill them. That's what we're told all the time. Police will kill you. So you're, you know, again, it's this divisive, non-humanizing, generalizing, fear-based tactic to divide society. And if you challenge it, 
the, the interesting thing is that we've embraced victimization. We've embraced being the oppressed or being the target. So if you challenge my oppression, if you challenge the thing that could that that defines me now, which is that I am a victim, then you're challenging my identity as a whole. In other words, if you tell someone who believes that they're going to be killed by police, that their police are out to get them, if you tell them, hey, look at the stats, that's just not true. You know, like it can happen. There is racism in society. I'm not arguing that. There are tragedies, but it's just not this epidemic that you think it is. If you even say that, you are now challenging not only their identity, their entire group identity, and you are racist, you are dangerous, you need to be censored, and it comes back to that censorship thing. So you can't even challenge these false narratives without being accused of being a dangerous person and then being sh- uh, shut down and censored. Which is what you've been at the effect of or experienced in, in what you've produced. Tell me a little bit, uh, Ilan, is that when, I want to know a little bit about where I'm assuming that the way your parents brought you up, their background led to some of this understanding and interest and these, you know, I don't want to call them idealisms, but we'll use that for lack of a better word in the moment. But I also want to know is that when you did this, what was your thought process behind it? Did you really think that you could produce this and make a difference? I'm assuming you thought, gosh, somebody's got to say something. What was kind of your motivation in, uh, in behind it? With the police one, it was right at the height of the defund movement. It was when people were being beaten on the street for even just saying anything, anything. Like you said, anything pro cop, you were beaten down on the street. It was in the middle of that. And I got to the point where I was like, oh, number one, I just can't. I, I don't I don't want to see things escalate in this direction anymore. It's detrimental to everyone, especially the very communities that people are worried about. You know, my my uh, girlfriend of 13 years, her family's from the Bronx. She's Dominican. Her own mother was having to be escorted to the grocery store because people, this is a minority woman, being attacked, by the way, by protesters who were majority white Antifa. Just such a weird thing in my head. And yet those Antifa members were being celebrated as creating social change. You're attacking a minority and burning down minority neighborhoods. I know, so that was crazy. Watching that was heartbreaking. Watching the businesses fucking. destroyed was like, it was, it was beyond shocking. It was, it angered me watching it. It was, I, it was on, I could not believe it. But that's a bit of a crowd mentality, right? It's that motion and momentum that gets created when you get yes, into those kind it wasn't criticized. It was celebrated mm. by and large by many, many politicians, which is what is shocking. Antifa was not not condemned by many people on the left. And it was minorities who were primarily being targeted. Interestingly enough, though, all that's going on. And I said, OK, there's not one company in the world willing to take a stand. Every single time I turned on my phone, Amazon, BLM, uh, this BLM. I'm not, and I'm not even criticizing BLM. I'm not saying anything about BLM, but there was nothing at all showing the other side of the equation. Let's humanize police just a little. It was all BLM, police bad, police bad. Anytime I turn on the news, police bad everywhere, uh, every huge corporation. So I said, there's not one company or one corporation. Companies are responsible for helping set social trends. So I said, I'm going to put out a message that humanizes police. It's not about defending them. It's not about attacking BLM. Again, it's about humanizing and showing what they go through and what they do and that the world isn't perfect. We're all imperfect and we're all trying to be better. I don't believe that all 870,000 police officers or even the vast, vast majority of police officers are these white supremacists, as people claim, and have systemic racism within them that are trying to go out and kill people. It's just the stats don't back it up from a factual standpoint. So I put out this message. There was a lot of fear around it from everyone, even my own family. They said, people will find out where you live, come to your house and target you. 
But anytime I feel like I'm going to be censored, I have to do it. That's what happened with Digital. I don't care if I'm risking my company. Everyone was like, this will ruin your company. I said, I don't care. I don't have a company if I can't stand up for what I believe in. I don't like the direction the, co- the country's headed in. If this destroys my, my company because I did something I believe in, at least I did something I believe in, and I'll build myself back up. I can always do that. I have an unlimited amount of ideas. What I don't have is opportunities to take a stand every day of my life. So I'll take a stand wherever I can. And so I, I put out the video. I tried to do it in a way that wouldn't make people feel attacked for who they are. And I think that's the most important thing in these messages is how do you do it in a way where even people on the other side who hate what you're saying will at least listen or watch and then say, okay, well, here's how I feel. I think that's what we need more of. And I feel like that's what the video does. I, I, you know, I don't feel like it attacks anything. And so I think that also saved it a little bit in terms of the backlash because we did get backlash. I got a lot of people who said, I'm not buying your watch anymore. You're a disgusting person. You're racist. I mean, I don't know who I'm racist toward, but apparently I'm racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've been called everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always come at it from a place of passion. I understand these people are just scared. They've been fed something over and over and over. So the saving grace of these videos and the way I respond to people is that I don't put them down. I hear them out. People just want to be heard. And so the, I think that when I, when I put out the video, I was shocked to see how many police needed to hear that message. We had tens of thousands of police officers reach out and say that they felt super alone and that no one in, a, in the country cared about them. And to see a company take a stand uh, meant the world to them. So I'm very thankful for that. When you're doing that kind of, when you take that stand, do you have fear behind it or are you just so fired up and so passionate about what you're seeing that you, you know, to, to, to stand down from it would not be an option for you? You know, I'll tell you what happens is I I start formulating an opinion on something based on my research or based on whatever I'm doing, like in this case with the the police. And then I start arguing with people and I catch myself or debating or attempting to debate with people, which turns into arguments. And I catch myself wasting hours every day away from my company, away from my family, just obsessed with, I have to prove my point. I have to get people to wake up. I have to get them to see that they're living in fear and it's not healthy. And, uh, and so I, I, I catch myself in these states. It's very, it doesn't happen often, but it happened with the Gillette thing. It happened with the police thing. It happened with the freedom thing. And whenever I get in a state like that, I go, you know what? I have to let go. I have to get my message out. And what's my biggest platform. My biggest platform is my company and my company's uh, channel. And so I end up just obsessively working on, on these projects. And yes, there's a lot of fear because I never know how people are going to react. I don't know. You know, I had, we had a big following from celebrities in Hollywood from all, these are not necessarily people who agree with my message. And then we had a big following from people, the Gillette thing, actually, a lot of people who appreciated our message started following our brand. Those aren't people who necessarily agree with humanizing police. Those are two completely different categories. So every time I did this, I was like, okay, is this going to destroy my company? That's my number one fear because I have to provide. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to make sure I'm a good provider. Uh, more than anything. But the second thing is, in the case with the police, was there was actual fear of being targeted. But again, I, w- I won't let myself be censored. Uh, I'd rather take the chance. I don't see it, but I'll ask the question. Is there politics for you behind it? You left, right, in the middle. Is there, a po- you know, is there politics that you think that you have to speak to behind all of this as well? It's interestingly enough, is if you ask me growing up what I identify as, I would have identified as a Democrat. And I don't necessarily know that the the part that I'm not, 
I think that the party has changed so much. I would say that I'm a libertarian. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very libertarian. I'm into individual rights. I don't believe the government should be involved in our life to the extent it is. I think that sadly, if we're being honest about politics, I think that sadly the Democratic Party has gone very far left. I think there's very few true Democrats left in the party. And I think that people were so focused on hating Donald Trump, and this is not even a defense of Donald Trump, that they didn't care what their own party did and how far it pushed them to, on every, every single uh, subject. And so the number one thing that I can't stand is hypocrisy. And people are like, well, everyone's a hypocrite. I'm like, no, not to the extent of complaining about kids in cages for four years to now we have a 700% increase in illegal immigration. Kids are being put in detention facilities that are very similar to the ones that Trump put them in, except at much higher numbers. And there's COVID positive people in there and they're giving, giving them like these metal bags. I don't know if you saw the picture. You can't even call that out. Mm. All of a sudden kids in cages is okay to you. You are against bombing in the Middle East. Now that your your party is bombing the Middle East, it's completely, and I say this as a Middle Eastern person, be consistent. No Middle Eastern person appreciates when you care about bombings in Syria under Trump when he first came into office, and you don't care about them now under Biden, and you're silent about them under Biden. You are sadly a hypocrite. And I take great offense to those things. I take, it's to me that the, the worst thing someone can do is use the suffering of someone else for political purposes. That's why those Holocaust comparisons bother me so much. Don't do it. There's no reason. Those are the the suffering of six million Jews has nothing to do with your suffering today. Just like if you cared about the suffering of kids in cages, you should still care about them today. It's still happening. It's just harder for you to call the person out because it's the person you want in power. So what what did you ever really care? Is my question. And the answer I can come up with is no, because the mental gymnastics people play when I talk to them to rationalize suffering today that is identical to suffering under Trump is shocking. And so I just, and that's the big problem with all this polarization, all this divisiveness is that we lose track of the common, I don't want to say common enemy, but common problem. So Mm -hmm. if the common problem is human suffering, then seek truth, not political allegiance. Truth should be your highest priority. And uh, so I'm priding myself lately on trying to be a truth seeker and be consistent I think it's the number one thing that people need to strive to be because there's so much disinformation that if you just strive to be consistent in your ethical standards, then you'll find truth within that. Um, but it, again, I have these conversations. I'm like, how, how, how did this switch happen? How, how is it okay? How is it okay? And I'm sorry to go on this rant, but how is it okay to lock people up in their homes because of COVID and tell them they can't see their dying parents? They can't work to feed their families and that they are evil if they go out and, and super spreaders to the next week saying millions of people on the street protesting racism is necessary and okay because this is a bigger problem. I, I just, and then again, a week later when that ends to say all of a sudden, no, we need to be back in, in lockdown because the, the protests ended and now we have more spread and that anyone who goes out and tries to work and have three people in their, in their uh, business is an evil person again. There's no me- there's no consistency there. Well, that's complete- and that boils down to me. And in Canada, I see that as well. And that to me boils down to the lack of you know leadership in our government. You know, sadly, that's what we've got to deal with. You know, it it is really in Canada. Different parts, different provinces within the country are shut down differently. 
you know, one of my businesses, uh, my retail businesses, which is a real specialty business in the world of ice hockey and figure skating and that kind of stuff is, is really specialty, you know, and I don't, I wasn't worried about a lockdown in that regard, but they shut down the sport. So you can't play hockey yet in Florida. You guys are playing hockey, by the way, every single day, (laughs) full on, you guys are skating and it's like, really, are you pissing me off? And Texas is the same way. So in here in Canada, which is, you know, our nation's, you know, kind of one of our nation's primary sports, many raised on it. But the point is this, is that the arenas are shut down. So in my business, I don't even have the opportunity. So I've had to shut one of my locations kind of pisses me off because of the politics that are behind it. Uh, You know, I live both in British Columbia and Alberta, two different provinces. And guess what? In once in one province, we're still playing hockey and the other province we're not. Well, where's the, you know, that, that's inconsistent. Is COVID different in one city than the other, one province than the other? And so I'm finding time and time again is that, you know, the inconsistent in the leadership is just, you know, when you look at what's happening economically, they can close down gyms, they can close down salons, they can close down small businesses, but people are lined up to go to the box stores, you know, the Amazons of the world, the Costco's of the world. And I'm going, like, make sense of this. How can I respect a government or a politician when it isn't rocket science? Now, having said all of that, um, you know, the the new thing that's happening right now in Canada is the fact that politicians have started coming out saying, well, we're we're just listening to our the, the medical experts. So in other words, they abdicate, they take no responsibility, no accountability. And, and there's a new word that's starting to, uh, to emerge that I've just been hearing a little bit called doctatorship because of really we're all at the effect of what, you know, parent doctors and science are saying. So I don't want to get into whether I agree or disagree with it. You know, I, I look at what's happening and what's behind it is just shitty leadership. They, you know, the, the way they're handling it and people are living in fear. So how do you live? How do you as a government deal with the fear? If your job is to get reelected and you say, no, we're opening up the economy then those who live in the fear of COVID and being sick or dying from COVID aren't going to vote for you. So then that skews the decisions that you're making because your job as a politician, your number one job is to get reelected. So these are the, you know, the politics of it that is really, really tough to live into and live with. And you can't, I mean, good for you. I mean, where do you, how do you, you, you've done a great job of the stand that you've taken, you know, some, there's an article that's floating around calling, you know, saying your, your addiction to outrage is ruling your life and it, you know, don't be outraged. But I, you know, and on the other side of it, I see your outrage and you're making a difference. And I don't know if you term it outrage. It sounds a little bit like outrage, but outrage is what has made the difference in the world many, many times. Somebody's outrage into the hypocrisy of something or the the unfairness of something, that's what's made the difference. So don't know where I'm going on that rant, but at the end of the day, I I really see and I feel it, you know, you're in the US, we're in Canada, but listen, they, they kind of merge together <laughs> anyways in so many different ways, as much as we want to keep them separate. Well, well, in terms of the outrage, I think that anger is a state of being. It's not, you know what I mean? You're going to be angry sometimes. Sure. And it just means you care about something. Yeah. The question is, if you're, if your outrage or your anger is based on the need to stop an idea from being expressed or to allow numerous ideas to be expressed. You're, in other words, your anger could be out of a state of fear or out of a state of sure. love. 
And so I think that that anger that is seeking truth and again, seeking diversity of thought is healthy outrage. I think that anger that is seeking to shut down or seeking to silence is dangerous outrage. Um, so th- that's the that's a great distinction. That's a great distinction, though. You know, that is perfect. Well said. Yeah. And, and to touch earlier on on the thing that, you know, you're you're saying that it's bad leadership, which I agree with. It's ter- And also there's such different opinions on, oh, uh, on from doctors. I mean, doctors are, to say that there's uh, I can find you countless doctors who don't agree with lockdowns. Oh, there's and, as and, many that don't as do for sure. You know, there's and the data, no. the data itself. Florida yeah. didn't lock down. California did lock down. Yeah. The populations are somewhat similar: twenty million in Florida, thirty million in California, roughly. And you have per capita more deaths in California. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, there's numerous examples that show that lockdowns. You know, where where's the hundred you know million dead Americans in the states that didn't lock down? Yeah, every death is a tragedy, but I, I think that again, that comes down to fear. We don't want one person to die. How far are we willing to go to save one person? And does the data support that that will even save one person? But regardless, I mean, you're right. The 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 problem with the bad leadership is it exists as a function of the population. When the then when the leadership can tell you it's okay for a million people to be out on on the same street and protest, and the next week they tell you it's not okay for people to be in a small business, and people go, oh, okay, they've now dropped all common sense. They've they, in other words, a population has allowed themselves to say doesn't matter what you tell me, I'll just go with it. Even if, if one week you're telling me to, that wearing a mask is okay, is, is necessary, and then the next week you tell me it's not, and then the next week you tell me it is, I'll do whatever you tell me. doesn't matter how much it changes. If you, if you, the president of the United States, just make a mask mandate, and then the next day are seen not wearing a mask, it's okay. I'll forgive it. It doesn't matter. You're special. Like I, I just don't know the type of... Sure the lack of common sense that's taking place nowadays. Yeah. Well, it's the, you know, hence the phrase that common sense is not quite so common. <laughs> now, tell me something, Ilan, is that, you know, I, I never know where some of you know, my conversations are going to go. And uh, so I've appreciated this particular conversation. I think it's really uh, timely and it's meaningful. And, and there's lots of great wisdom and lessons that you've shared. But I want to go back a little bit. I'm always interested, you know, Nature or nurture? That's always kind of the question that's in my head. You know, where do you come from in terms of whether it be your creativity, the stands you take? I, I, you know, you talked about your mother out of Iraq, your father uh, being his family being at the effect of the Holocaust as in being Jewish. Were you raised in these kind of like, I don't want to call them idealisms, these beliefs, you know, the stand that you take, being a, a meaningful leader in a community? Where did this come from? Is that something that your parents kind of drilled into you or is it just how you brought up? What is it for you? So I think it's important when I say those things to say that this, despite my identity being that, it doesn't define me in any way, shape or form. In other words, that even if I've gone through my own personal kind of uh, hardships, they don't sure. define me. They are not so, but they they helped formulate perceptions of reality. And so one of the things that I saw was what my, for example, my mother had to go through. She escaped Iraq, lived in a tent, went through multiple wars. I mean, it was just numerous things that you would think would, we talk about like victimization and empowerment, would allow someone to feel like a victim. But what I saw was that my mother had never allowed herself to be a victim. It never affected any action she took in life, and she never used it as an excuse for not being able to achieve something. In other words, it was never part 
of the conversation in terms of success or failure. It was part of the conversation of this is what I went through. This is a part of reality. You do have to be careful in life because things can get that way. So be aware of that. And so that seeing a person who went through that, who's very, very empowered and never had an excuse is a very, very good lesson to have from a young age. Uh, same from, from my father, you know, you hear a lot of families that he, so he lost a lot of his family. He doesn't have much family and uh, he never really, again, let it define him. He defined himself around the positive things in his life. So us, uh, his work, the things that he could focus on that he had control over. And so again, he was a really great lesson because no matter what was going on or no matter how things got, the, the number one lesson I learned from my father was always focus on the things that are actionable, right? So that's my ideology is heavily formed around that single point. Uh, you asked me earlier, like, how did I, you know, what, what was my focus for the future of the company? It was always, what do I focus on that's actionable? What, what can I do? What can I physically do in effect? And that, that's directly from my father. And I think that's because of his background. And I actually make, I, I've said this before, but I make a list. No, I didn't say it here, but I've said it on other podcasts. Is that I always make a list whenever I feel out of focus. And I divide it into fear and passion. And then on the fear side, I write down all my fears and I try and get more and more and more specific. And then I look at what's kind of an ethereal fear. What's a fear that doesn't is not really tangible, which is most fears. Most fears are future-based. They haven't happened. They're based on something that is not reality. And it may or may not happen. Oftentimes, if it does happen, the time you wasted being scared of it was time you could have put toward helping prevent it or helping affect it or helping deal with it when it does. And so I break down everything and I put everything into what is actionable. Um, and I do that with my business. I do that with my health because my health is a big thing for me that gets me into fear-based states. And then on the, on the other side with passion, I look at what's actionable. What do I have control over? And I try and do more of those things because I'm passionate about them. And then the ones that I'm passionate about that are just kind of, again, ethereal and future-based and things I'm looking forward to, I try and get into a state of uh, appreciation and gratefulness. And if I just focus on those things, it takes me completely out of fear and puts me into being uh, grateful and kind of acting out of a place of, of joy or love or whatever you want to call it and acting out of a place of, uh, of fear. And so uh, it, it's a really good exercise for me. I do it whenever I feel lost and it kind of refocuses me and recenters me. I'm like, oh, I actually can do all these things. I just had to do it recently because I have a, a CT scan of my, uh, my uh, abdomen, my pancreas, my liver, all this stuff, my pelvis. And I'm like, for sure, they're going to find something. For sure, they're going to find something. I have symptoms. For sure, I find myself future-based, fear. Mm -hmm. Again, this is ethereal. There is no outcome yet. And so I pull myself, what can I do today? Well, I haven't done the test yet. I don't have the results yet. I can focus on my health today. I can focus on what makes me happy today. And I can, I break it down the list. And so it actually, even with my health, re-centers re me and allows me to get out of it. I love that. I, dude, I love that exercise. That's a great, great exercise. I've done, I do versions of that, but you've articulated it really, really well. When you look at the work that you do, you know, you're a great leader. You've got a track record for leadership. You take a stand for the values that you hold, which is uh, what so few people are willing to do. When you look at how you show up, you know, and go back to leadership quality, is that intentional on your part? So in other words, I asked the question uh, because there's always this world out there that, you know, people believe that somebody's a natural born leader, you know, going back to what do you read? Or do you pay attention to it? Are you very conscious of how you show up? Are you 
being intentional in who you're being in the context of your life. What is it for you? I mean, you talked about that exercise. Great. So you have an awareness around that. But are you also aware of how you show up as a leader within your business, in the community, et cetera? I catch myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. In any circumstance, in the circumstance of being a uh, positive role model, uh, my girlfriend has three kids. So, you know, there's there's times where you're just existing and you're acting a certain way. And then there's times where you catch yourself and you go, oh, no, this is an opportunity to teach or this is an opportunity to be a leader. Vice versa in my business, I'm having an exchange and something might tr- like, you know, trigger. And I'm like, oh, uh, am I dealing with this properly? Am I Am I setting the proper example? Am I... One of the things I notice most in in my business when I work with people is, again, that when I show absolute appreciation for what they're doing and I motivate them and I let them know that they have value, their quality of work exponentially increases. And so I always try and be in a state of trying to set an example and not get caught up in in negative things, to get caught up in positive things. Now, I, I can't say that I always show up as a leader. Sure. I, I would love to say I do. But um, again, it's kind of like this this thing where there's a certain moment where I say, whoa, here's an opportunity to kind of affect this person. Or here's an exchange I'm having where I can actually kind of set a, uh, set a standard. And so I, I catch myself in those opportunities. I make them important and I, I take advantage of them. Yeah. I think it's interesting that I think most leaders would say, I don't always show up as a leader, right? I think it's just, (laughs) that's actually (laughs) the quality of a leader, you know, having that self-awareness and being. Now you you talk about what you can control, what you can't control, uh, not being a victim. Um, Those are all kind of, uh, there's a lot of stoic philosophy in, in that statement. Did you ever study stoicism? Did you ever read Marcus Aurelius? That wasn't one of the things that you did. It was just came from how you were brought up, perhaps uh, just whatever you took on organically as you read? I think I was exposed to information that led me in this way. And I I don't know exactly what it was. I think, like I said, I started kind of seeking out more truth. One of the things that the diving into the concepts and the virtues of masculinity and the virtues of what it meant meant to be a man historically, I have a good friend, Jordan Foltz, who has discussions with me about this stuff. And so we discuss like the virtues that are necessary for uh, for being a man and rites of passage and all this stuff. And a lot of those ideas are at the core of what I always believed in. I don't know why, but they're, they're things that resonate with me. And they're things that I feel that are sorely lacking in society today. One of the things I'm a huge advocate for is rites of passage for young boys. I think they need something that takes them out of a state of being a boy and, and makes them realize you're a man now, there's consequence, personal accountability, you have to be courageous. You have to have fortitude. These ideas are okay. It's okay to see yourself in this way. And so, I, yeah, I, I don't know if it was one specific thing, but I, I definitely, you know, it was exposed to it. It didn't, yeah, it definitely was exposed to it. Fantastic. You know, I've taken a lot of your time and I appreciate your time today. I, I could go into, we never even got into a conversation about real estate and what you're doing, <laughs> what you've done in real estate. Which I, I can tell you quick if you want. Good, yeah, give, us, give, me some, give me some insights into your real estate world. So real estate's just been one of those. I always like the idea. I, I, I'm an ownership kind of guy. I like owning things. So you know what I mean? I, I never liked renting my place. It never felt like it was mine. Sure. Even from a, and I mean, I lived in rough places. When I lived in New York, I lived in an attic that didn't have a kitchen and had rats. <laughs> like I moved <laughs> to Spanish Harlem and I lived with six people in a four bedroom place and it took me a while to kind of build up. But I finally got to the place where I could afford a townhome. 
and I bought it uh, pre-construction. This was the first property I ever bought. Bought it pre-construction. Where was this? This was in California. California. In Col- yep. Yeah. So my girlfriend's it was actually the one who inspired me to become more involved oh, in real estate. Those darn women, they're so smart. Okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's crazy. brilliant. And she was like, look, you know, this area is up and coming. It's the only place that's left that's affordable in California. It's a beautiful uh, uh, complex. It's gated. And it's going to, I believe, it's going to turn around. She's like, she's just looking at future trends. And she's like, this makes sense. Just look at the location, look at everything. I started looking at it and analyzing it the way she told me to analyze it. And I was like, well, okay, well, let's try it. You know what I mean? And so I bought there. And by the time the construction had finished, my place had gone up $100,000. And then within a year later, it had gone up another $60,000. And they had finished uh, construction um, of this beautiful, started construction, not finished. It was like mid midway through this place right across the street. And so prices had peaked. And um, then I had a conversation with her. I'm like, I think I, we should sell the place because I think it just went up so much that it can't exponentially increase this way. She's like, yeah. She's like, let's take the money and see what else we can do. And so that kind of started this uh, snowball of wanting to get into real estate. And uh, I kind of have a motto. I just look at essentially cap rates and depending on what I'm trying to do, I like, there's two aspects of real estate. I like to move into homes that will increase in value if they get fixed up a little bit and vice versa. I like to buy from a real estate standpoint, the cheapest home in a neighborhood with the cheapest rent, sure. whether it's multifamily, whether it's, so my, my philosophy is always if, uh, am I allowed to cuss? If, oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It hits the fan yeah. that this is the place people are going to be looking to rent. Yeah. And so I've always done that. I've always just looked for places that need a little bit of work. I've always looked, I don't like trendy places. I don't like the places that are are already going up in value. I like to look right outside those areas mm-hmm. and just look at trends and look where migration is occurring. Look at what's going to happen in the next five years in an area. Do I believe that people will be moving here? Do I believe that the area will change? And so I'm very kind of future-based with it, but I always try and have a certain cap rate going into a place. And that's, I've consistently done that. I bought a place in Boynton Beach, I saw an opportunity to add another unit to the place. I saw a lot of value. I ended up paying 540,000 for it. It's bringing in, it will bring in when the bottom unit's done something like 8,200 a month. Wow. (laughs) Great return on investment. I could probably sell it now, right now for 950,000. And uh, I bought that a year and a half ago. I mean, I just look for these unique opportunities. The biggest part of real estate for me is like I said, I'm impulsive. So I've had to learn to just let things go. And I'm very good at that now. If it's not right, it's not right. And I won't fight for a property. Don't force the river. Don't force the river. Yeah. There's always there's always something that's going to come up. Yep. I've really learned that. And so like this house, the one I'm living in now, was the first one where I kind of fought for it because it was, it, it was a, like I said, it was a dream to live on a home on the water that had a point lot. So it's, it's like uh, around the water, around it, which just gives it this panoramic view. It was a sure. dream, real dream. And I came in and I was like, oh no, I know someone else is going to see this. They're going to have the same reaction as me, but it's, it's not. And so this was the first time I bought, not as an investment. Yeah. But interestingly enough, I moved to Florida before I saw the trends happening in California and the problems in California, the problems in New York. And I saw it all early. And so I left and bought in Florida before the spike of this massive amount of, uh, of migration here. So, and so my property values exponentially. You're, you're a genius. I get, get, well <laughs> I'm done. lucky. Well done. No, well lucky. done. Of course. But that's it. Just, I, I, so my whole real estate experience has just been looking at trends. Okay. I got to know though, did you buy the boat that sits at the, at the dock? You have a, did you go buy the boat to go with your property? Yes. Of course you did. <laughs> Good for you. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. There's a member of our uh, community, uh, Victor Manash, who you talk about what you buy in terms of, you know, the least expensive home in the right neighborhood or whatever, you know, use. But he he says, buy the line, move the line. So in that phrase, he's buying right on the line and he's a bit of a development guy. So he'll buy the very edge of the, you know, the kind of the worst part of town that, you know, just across the street, it's awesome it, or it will be awesome. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he's one that drives it so that it does in fact become awesome. So he's pretty good at that. And that's really the, the play that it sounds like that's the play that you're making when you're investing in real estate. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's quite brilliant the way he, he phrased yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Well, that's cool. Now. Um, so do you, have you got an existing rental portfolio? Do you hold real estate or, or are you holding it short term and, and, and then ultimately selling it on a lift or what's your strategy around how long you hold a piece of real estate? Uh, the one in Boynton, because of the return, it's so, so high that, uh, I'm, I'm holding it. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally I don't mm-hmm. normally I'd like to come into a place, see how much it can increase in value within a couple of years. And then, uh, next, mm-hmm. we're looking at a property now in Florida, Florida has become tough because now this is the exact market. I don't like to be in Florida now has become hyper competitive. Yeah. Uh, the amount of people coming here, there's people buying sight unseen, just putting offers to yeah. cash and it's yeah. just become a, a huge headache. So I've started looking at other markets or other parts of Florida, which might not be as competitive. Typically what I like to do, what I'm really getting into is, uh, is short-term rentals right now, especially at the end of kind of like this COVID era where uh, we're now allowed to start having short-term rentals again. Florida really is a strong market for short-term rentals. Uh, again, the problem is the cap rates on what people are offering here make no sense right now because of the, the competitiveness. So yeah, if I could, typically I don't like to hold too long. Yeah. I like to take my money and, and go on to something else and see if I could do a quick turnaround there too. Yeah, certainly. And in, and in Canada, you know, certainly having, you know, similar experience with certain markets that are, they're just so heated, you know, offers no conditions, you know, nothing. It's just, it really is a, a very heated time right now, given what's going on. People are moving, readjusting and huge demand, very limited supply. So prices are driving up. Well, what you do see during any pandemic historically or any type of uh, situation like this is that people leave the the busy city, they go a little bit more yeah. um, rural, and then they come back five years later. I'm I'm looking to invest in uh, New York and California, actually, when the markets go down to their low point. I mean, I don't know exactly what that low point will be, but... Yeah, interesting. Okay. You know, it's interesting is that uh, just as a Canadian paying attention a little bit to what's going on in New York, I mean, there's some pretty savvy guys that are saying... New York will never come back to what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not, but that doesn't mean real estate can't work in parts of New York. I don't believe New York will ever come back for a myriad of reasons. Number one, we just don't need Wall Street there anymore. Mm-hmm. If everything is done, we I mean, look at what happened with GME and everything. You just realize that Wall Street heavily controlled by, can be you know dominated by people from their phones nowadays. Totally. Um, but uh Additionally, I just think that the world has changed enough that New York is no longer the center point. Yeah. And the allure of New York has died down. So it's no, it's not going to go back. Uh, and we we have a property in New York. Uh, my girlfriend has uh, has a nice place in New York. And I told her to sell it three years ago and she didn't. Oh my God. Oh, what <laughs> darn, did you do? darn girlfriends, <laughs> significant others. <laughs> but, um, no, but I do feel like California, especially you're starting to see that, tide change a little bit. People are getting tired of all this stuff. 
So I think that that the prices there will crash and then increase. And so I'm I'm just waiting for those those moments if they come. Awesome. And uh, the future vision for watches. You know, something I've got some really really nice watches, uh, including Rolex. But here's I always end up wearing my Fitbit or you know some with you know Apple Far watches. Away. Is that had an impact on your business at all, or is it just it's not even at the effect? But you don't even think about it. Two different buyers. Yeah. Um, and we've considered making a smartwatch just to test it on the market, but I, I really enjoy making these cool kind of unique looking, like I'm wearing a, a prototype today. The crystal on this watch is very cool. It's kind of curved. Totally. Um, and it has a 72 hour power reserve. So just like cool, cool stuff. And I like them. They're fashion. Pieces, hey, well, but- listen, you're, uh, you're in, uh, you're in Florida. You know, you, do you know, Kevin, have you heard of, or do you know, Kevin O'Leary? I've heard of Kevin O'Leary. Oh, dude, you got to look him up. He's probably got, he's got a absolute world-class watch collection. He's totally into watches. Um, really, he's, he did Dragon's Den and he also does uh, Shark's Tank. Yeah, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a watch guy in a huge way, like huge. As a matter of fact, it's it's a thing. And uh, oh, he, really? ta- he talks about it a lot. And uh his watch collection is stored. It's one of's. It's one of onlys. It's you know, it's it's intense. He's uh he's pretty funny about his watch collection. So there you go. Awesome. Because yeah. you, because you're you're that connector. That might be that would be a good one. That would be a very cool one. Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. Okay, I do a little bit of rapid fire questions here, Ilan. Sure. You ready? Yep. This one isn't actually that rapid fire, but it's a good question. Self-care routine, morning, evening. Do you have a daily practice of how you mental, emotional, physical? Are you a workout guy? You, you look like a workout guy. but So lifetime of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Filipino martial arts, and Muay Thai, huge part of my life. When my health So you're a weapon. It, you're lethal. You're just a kick-ass <laughs> kick kind of guy. I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, black belt in all of the, the above. Black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. I'm um, getting my second degree black belt soon, actually, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, fifth degree now in various Filipino martial arts. And Muay Thai doesn't have belts, but I've been doing it since I'm a little kid. So that's that's my uh, self kind of... So are you a Joe Rogan fan? Do you follow Joe and his training? I like Joe Rogan. He's, he's actually a good martial artist. Legitimately. Legitimately. Yeah, totally. He's a, he's an, he's a serious, serious competitor. And uh, so I like Joe Rogan for that. You uh, You have the kids involved? You bring the kids into what you're doing? In the, the martial, in the martial arts world? Try to much more than they want to. Yeah. Uh, so there's moments where they get super into it, and then there's moments where they're busy being kids. But it's like <laughs> uh, any opportunity. Just two days ago at 1130 at night, I started fighting uh, doing martial arts with, <laughs> with their son. So. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. What's your How many hours a week do you train? Uh, when I'm healthy, I train roughly, I can do two hours a day. There was one point where I was part of a fight team where I was doing eight hours some days. Right Right now, I'm training maybe four times a week for an hour and a half. Uh, it's a little less until I get my health fully back. Do you compete anymore or do you compete? I used to compete. I plan on competing again, again, as soon as I'm not even waiting for the doctors to give me a green light. I'm just kind of waiting for my body to feel well enough to know that it can sustain competition. So I think within a year, mm-hmm. all goes well. You're a young should... guy. How old are you now? Dylan? 38, turning yeah. 39 in less than a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, you're in good shape. You're doing it. Favorite book? Do you have one or a book that you gift? Do you have one? You know, it's interesting. There's a book I read when I was a, a kid that I still, I'm just obsessed with it. The boy, uh, the boy who could fly. I don't know if it's just an interesting little, it's, 
probably not worth recommending. It's just a <laughs> childhood book. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a book that, um, trying to think of a book that I would recommend. No, offhand, I don't have a set book. That I can... iPhone or Android? I like Android more. I have an iPhone. You know something? I have an iPhone and I had pressure put on me. And uh, I had a uh, Samsung. And uh, I kind of like it better than my iPhone. So that's what I yeah. got to say about that. What is the job that you do, even though you hate it, but you do it because you're good at it? Oh, that's a tough question. I don't think I hate doing anything I'm good at right now. Uh, I would, you know what I don't like? I don't like the, so I'm good at the business aspects of running the company mm-hmm. and I, I don't enjoy that. It's not creative. Oh, you like the creative. You don't like the minutia, the operations side of it. And I, I'm heavily involved in the operations side of manufacturing and all that stuff. And I'm mm. good at it. I understand it. Yeah. I don't enjoy it at all. Now, so curious, why don't you have an operations manager or what do you do? And what, what's the, what's the, what's, I just, I'm interested. I, uh, you know, you're a growth guy. So why don't you have a, somebody smarter than you in the operations side? Because there's a certain amount of oversight that I've had. You know, it's finding the right person. There's a certain mm, amount of oversight sure. that's happened before where there's a small little issue and it affects production dramatically. And that's one of those things with watches that's very, very tough. It takes yeah. four to six months to make the product. Yeah. If there's yeah. one problem along the way, reset that. Or okay. we get them in the worst case scenario, which has happened. And there's something that was overlooked. Like, I know these watches. No one's going to know them as well as I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. So... Do you have an uh, inspirational quote that you love, that you go to? Oh, I have a, a series of quotes that I like, but I, I, a lot of them just come out of, of acting out of love. Like sure. there's a whole series of them. Tell me, but, okay, so tell me something, you know, the, because you've, you've, you've mentioned that a couple different times, Alain. What does acting out of love mean to you? What is that, if you, if you could articulate that? So I think there's, there's two fundamental states for a human being. You're acting out of a state of fear, self-protection. Yes. You know, it it kind of is, like you said, the more natural state where we're exposed to the world and it scares us. And then acting out of love is acting out of a, I guess from a a Buddhist, I'm not Buddhist, but I guess if you were to say like from, it's not taking self, absolute self into consideration as much as it's taking everything else into consideration. So Mm. What's, you know, it's easy to become self-protective and not think about the people around you. It's easy to become self-protective and, and want to shut down. And so acting out of love would be acting out of a place that is, is so, so much to say is like, again, not censorship, not shutting down, not doing all these negative things, mm-hmm. acting out of a place that even if it might be hard for you is the right thing to do in that moment. Does that go back to a little bit of, you know, do you see that as, I'm not an expert in depression, but I've heard the quote many times along the lines that you can only be depressed if you're self-centered, if you're like navel gazing, if you're only focused on yourself, that's where depression lives. You know, when you're looking outside of yourself and beyond yourself, then it's, you, it's hard to be depressed. And I don't understand depression in terms of the chemical and the brain things that go on. So I'm, I'm not trying to paint anybody with one brush, but is that in line with what you're thinking as well, Alan? So I've suffered from some pretty severe depression mm-hmm. and even uh, led to the point of uh, something very interesting, which is called uh, like uh, uh, depersonalization, where I felt like I wasn't even in my body. Like these sure. aren't my hands because you become so detached. 
And it's always introspective. You actually, what happens is you, two things happen to me when I get very depressed. I feel like, imagine you're stuck inside yourself. So it's like your eyes are out here and you're all the way back here and you're like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing that happens is sometimes you just become highly depersonalized. You're like, that's not me. I want nothing to do with that person. And I think that a lot of uh, the way to help depression is to put yourself in environments where you take the attention off yourself. Very hard to do, Mm -hmm. Uh, but absolutely. um, If you start separating your kind of, so I I went to see a psychologist for this. And one of the things he told me to do was to realize that there's my consciousness and there's myself and to allow myself to just be present um, and not become hyper introspective. So exactly what you're saying. So yeah, if you're acting out of love, you're acting for other people, you're acting for, Mm. and self-love. I mean, that's That's huge. That's huge. But you're not letting yourself feel bad for yourself when you're acting out of love. You're, you're focused on Again, the actionable things. How can I I make things better? Love it. Favorite swear word? Fuck. I mean, it's just... It's It's an easy... It's a a go-to, right? If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? You're one of my guys. Room... (laughs) Room desk of your car. What do you clean first? Um, My desk. Do you have a favorite tune? Uh, there's a song that, uh, I have to look up the name of it, which I absolutely love. Give me one second. It's a very weird, it's a very weird song, but it makes me think about all this stuff. Hold on. That's great that we need to know it. It's called hope there's someone and it's by Anthony and the Johnsons. And I heard it on a, uh, on a singing show on uh, one of those, like, I can't remember which one. It was just, it's a depressing song. But there's something very beautiful. <laughs> yeah. There's something beautiful about it. Um, so hope there's someone. What was the sorry, who's the author? Because now I'm writing it down. And Anthony, Anthony and the Johnsons. I th- okay. I'm almost certain this is the song, but actually the version of it that I like is the version from that singing song. It's this uh like from uh the voice or or I think it was the voice, yes. Yeah. Yes, it's Chloe Castro. Versus Allery Green battle performance, and that's the song. There, uh, Chloe Castro. If you just put the voice, yep. hope there's someone on YouTube. But again, you might hate it. And uh, <laughs> I apologize. If hey, you listen, do we we have many many music files that listen to this show. Trust me. Favorite movie? Uh, again, that's a super tough question. I'm going back. I loved Fight Club growing up. I was obsessed with Fight Club. Oh, we've had a few guests cool. that have dug Fight Club, but you know, I watched, uh, I rewatched Matrix for the first time in forever. Uh, just recently in the past couple of weeks, I don't know what drew me to it, but, uh, both my wife and I said, let's watch the Matrix. It's all kind of funky. What's going on? Matrix is one of my favorite movies of all time. Absolutely. I, I'm a huge sci-fi buff. So I love sci-fi movies. Um, but just a, in, in my world, there's a degree of truth to it. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it's a little yeah. bit of reality to me. That's awesome. What are you grateful for today? Elan? I am grateful for the fact that I woke up feeling great and uh, grateful for the podcast that we, that I get to do with you. Awesome. I listen, dude. I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with you and uh, the opportunity that we had to uh, meet and the fact that you uh, said yes to the interview. That's great. I'm really, really glad that you uh, joined me today on the podcast. And I'm absolutely grateful for uh, living in the Fraser Valley today. Beautiful day. And uh, that always makes me feel awesome. So thanks for your time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.